Hello and thanks for the privilege of your company today on Search for Truth. This week our Bible teacher Brian brings us talk number two in our new series called Increasing Our Christian Footprint As We Walk With God. Today Brian looks into some events in the Old Testament of the Bible to discover and make comparisons with some of the promises and blessings which God gives us as we receive Christ into our lives by faith. So, let's go now to Brian and find out more. Thanks, John. And just to recap, we've been learning that the name Gilgal wasn't originally a specific place name as such, but it was a term used for circular stone enclosures, which, when taken together, gave the shape of a giant foot. Benjamin Matsar of the Hebrew University believes he's identified the biblical valley of Succoth as being the point where the Jabbok River enters the Jordan. If that's correct, it's exactly opposite a wadi known as Wadi Farah, and near to that wadi you'll find a Gilgal site enclosed by a wall. It's on an oval hill overlooking the wadi, and it may be the Gilgal that gets a mention in Deuteronomy chapter 11 verse 30. That particular Gilgal is the one used to locate Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and the ribbon of greenery behind the mentioned oval hill marks the course of the fertile wadi linking the sites of Shechem and Mount Ebal to the Jordan River. Not only does this discovery, near to the Jabbok River, appear to be one of these Gilgal stone structures, but it contains pottery, just like pottery coming from the excavation of the altar on Mount Ebal. And this fact supports the idea that this Gilgal site was a fortified camp dating back to the period of Israel's earliest history in the land of Canaan. It does seem reasonable to think of these Gilgals, or if you like, these footprints, as having the purpose of representing God's people under Joshua's leadership, taking ownership of the land of Canaan as their promised land by setting their foot on it. In Deuteronomy 11 and verse 30, After describing how the blessings should be pronounced on Mount Gerizim and the curses on Mount Ebal, the Bible text locates these two well-known mountains with the words, Are Gerizim and Ebal not on the other side of the Jordan, by the way where the sun goes down, that is to the west, in the land of the Canaanites that dwell in the country over against Gilgal? This description refers to the west side of the Jordan. Seen from the heights of Gilead, the sun sets in the west, beyond the pass through the wadi Farah, over against Gilgal, the text says. So, could the enclosure found by the university professor, which is only four miles from Mount Ebal and Shechem, could it be the northern Gilgal referred to in this verse? Experts tell us that there's no other site with better credentials. There was a different Gilgal, of course, one which lay in the neighbourhood of Jericho. For we read, the people came up from the Jordan and encamped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. It was here that Joshua set up twelve stones to commemorate the Israelite people's successful crossing of the river Jordan. But the Gilgal we began with, the one overlooking the Wadi Farah, is a different Gilgal. It's up in the north. And this northern Gilgal is a rival, if you want to call it that, to the more famous southern Gilgal nearby to Jericho. Apparently then, and in summary of what we've been saying, 
there were at least two Gilgals, a northern one and a southern one, as well as others, of course. For as we were saying, it's long been recognised that Gilgal is not a specific location, but a type of fortified camp. The large enclosure encircled by a wall nearly six feet wide, which is in all likelihood the northern Gilgal, was discovered when surveying the southern side of the Wadi Farah, a major valley that leads from Shechem, Mount Ebal and Tirza down to the Jordan River. Since this Gilgal is located close to the point where the Jabbok River enters the Jordan River, our thoughts turn to a Bible event which took place there. It concerns the patriarch, Jacob, and how he obtained his father Isaac's blessing. Isaac should have known better than ever to promise his other son, Esau, the blessing. In his old age, we wonder if Isaac had forgotten what God had revealed to his wife Rebekah before the children were born, namely that the elder would serve the younger. But here was Isaac promising to bless the elder. He would seemingly have made him Jacob's master, according to the usual custom for the firstborn, but it was against God's express will for Esau to have this blessing. But equally, what were Rebekah and Jacob playing at? It could well be that, by contrast, they did have in mind God's word to them, but to use deceit? The end never justifies the means. This is a shabby episode in Jacob's life. If getting his older brother's birthright was by taking unfair advantage, this was worse, involving impersonation and downright lies to lay claim to the blessing that went along with the birthright. But you say, how could God have worked it out otherwise? Well, we simply don't know, but this wasn't God's way. Later, God would teach Jacob a lesson. It happened 20 years later, when Jacob returned into the vicinity of the northern Gilgal. We read in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Having tricked his old, partially sighted father in this way, Jacob had run off with the blessing which had belonged to his brother, but he'd have to reap what he'd sown, which included his own uncle cheating him time after time by short-changing him in his wages. Then one day God told Jacob to go back home. It was on that return journey that this strange figure confronted him and began to wrestle with him. Could it be that Jacob was wrestling with God? What might God's purpose have been in what we'd expect to be a totally one-sided contest? Was he coming down to Jacob's level to teach him the most vital lesson of his life? One which he learned well, for this would become the turning point of Jacob's life. This experience, down by the fords of the Jabbok River, 
in the valley of Succoth, near to the Wadi and the northern Gilgal, in the shades of evening, would leave its mark on the rest of Jacob's life. Jacob's personal history to this point had been one of struggling with man and struggling with God in order to grab the things God had already planned to give him anyway. By this time in life, he'd had personally revealed to him the great promises which God had first made to his grandfather Abraham. He believed them, yes, but he wasn't content to leave the outcome to God. No, he was always trying to make it happen for himself. Even now in his struggle against the wrestler in the chasm, he says to God, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God then says to him, what's your name? Seems like an unusual question at that precise moment, doesn't it? Until we remember that Jacob had once tricked his own blind father and deceived him into giving him a blessing by using his brother's name instead of his own. His father had asked him back then, and at that time Jacob had lied and said, Esau, my name's Esau. But now, later, and alone with God, when God, the all-seeing father, the father of all, asks him his name, he says, Jacob, it's Jacob. I wonder if in that split second, did Jacob think to himself, Ah, you've got me. You've exposed my heart. It's true, the last time I asked someone for a blessing, I deceived him by giving a false name. So Jacob realised the deceitfulness of his own heart, and his life was forever changed. For a start, he was reconciled with his brother Esau. Like Jacob, deep in the chasm of the Jordan Valley, we too, as Christians, may have encountered God, maybe after some low point in our life, only to discover, like him, we'd been so blessed. Like Jacob, standing in the presence of God, and soon to be in peace with his brother Esau, we can legitimately, in Christ, lay claim to the promises of our spiritual birthright. And we too should be at peace with our Christian brothers. Hebrews 12 says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. We're encouraged to pursue our spiritual birthright with the same kind of desire Jacob had for what it meant to him in his appreciation of God's purposes. But have we got our priorities right? I hope we're not to be compared with Esau. After this episode in his life, Jacob had a distinctive walk thanks to God's touch on his hip. But what he did was set foot more purposefully on the ground God wanted him to cover. Remember, the setting for this story is the northern Gilgal, and its symbolism is all about taking possession of the land. Are we taking possession of our spiritual blessings? Are we taking possession of the blessings that belong to our birthright? Follow down the same Hebrews chapter, and you'll come to the modern people of God at worship in Hebrews chapter 12. Read it again, please, and consider it thoughtfully. Does our church experience match up to this, or do we have some ground to make up?
Thanks, Brian, for that interesting study. I hope you enjoyed our study with Brian too. Please remember that the transcript book for this series is almost essential if you want to do a more detailed study alone or with a group. It's most helpful and it's free. Also, if you have any questions, please write in and Brian will be glad to help. You can download many of our books and talks via the internet, but the hard copy book for this series is available to you by asking for the title "Increasing Our Christian Footprint." You can order by email or by post, and here's our address: Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wotton Bassett, Swindon, SN four eight. Dy UK, and our email address is sft at churchesofgod dot info. Also, look out for Search for Truth featuring on www dot twr three six zero dot org. We're excited that this will give you yet another excellent way of accessing our programs. So, thanks for being with us today. Do join us next week if you can, when Brian looks at how we can gain a secure foothold in our walk with God. Until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers, and me, John. So cheerio, and may God richly bless you. <laughs>